Welcome to Scuttlebutt and a Cup of Joe. I'm your host, Trisha Menke, the museum's curator of education. In honor of Memorial Day, I have a very special guest with me today. Rear Admiral Darius Banaji is the Deputy Director of Operations at the Defense POW MIA Accounting Agency, which is a long name for a very special organization. Thank you so much for being with me today, Admiral. Hey, Trisha, thanks a lot. It's a pleasure to be here and represent uh, the men and women that work at DPAA and talk about what we have the honor to do uh, for our families and nation. Well, first and foremost, what is the Defense POW MIA Accounting Agency, better known as DPAA? Sure. So I'm going to give you two. I'm going to give you a short answer and then a little, a little bit longer one uh, to explain what we do. So the short answer is we, DPAA, we are charged to provide the fullest possible accounting of the nation's missing in action from past wars. So that's the short answer. The longer answer, a little bit more about us and our mission. The men and women of DPA are entrusted with this noble mission that is reflective of America's values and fulfills a sacred obligation owed to missing service members. We unwaveringly pursue searching for, recovering, and identifying American MIAs on behalf of their families, comrades in arms, both serving in uniform today and a grateful nation. And the last piece I'll share with you is to provide some context there are over 81,000 Americans still unaccounted for from past wars, which include World War II, Vietnam, Korean War, and Cold War. Of these, we estimate 37, 38,000 are not deeply deep sea losses and are possibly recoverable by our efforts. That's an amazing number. That's a huge number. I, I would not have expected it to be so high. Um, and even better to know that such a large number of that group are, are hopefully um, in a location where you can get to them and you can bring them home. That's a good point. You know, when I came to this mission, I didn't realize how vast it was until I learned more about it. So who all makes up the personnel of this team? With so many missing, I imagine, and, and, and all over the world, I imagine you need a lot of people to get this done. Um, tell us about who all is working for the DPAA. Sure. So, so we're comprised of about 700 soldiers, sailors, airmen, Marines, and DOD civilians and contract employees. And we're assigned in eight locations in the US, Europe, and the Pacific. We have some unique skills. So our people possess the following specialized skills to include anthropologists, archeologists, historians, research analysts, archivists, odontologists, which is forensic dentists, special forces medics, explosive ordnance disposal technicians, divers, mountaineers, linguists, communication specialists, uh, forensic combat camera photographers, and logisticians, just to name a few. Additionally, we have a robust private partner program with over 100 organizations who substantially augment our own capabilities to conduct research, uh, take on innovative projects, and do field missions for us around the globe. Wow. I imagine civilians just apply on USA Jobs. like any civilian um, in the government, but how do our active duty personnel get involved? Um, do they apply to work there? Is it, how, how do they get to you? Oh, great question. So for the active duty military, uh, some are special billets like uh, linguists, medics, uh, divers, things like that, mountaineers. So those men and women would compete, would apply for this job like any other job they would do in their uniform services. And uh, we have a process where we review and vet some of those candidates and select them, especially for the more senior positions with certain experience to come here. And I'll also share with you, 
as we look at these variety of men and women, whether it's an engineer, a mountaineer, a linguist, or an EOD tech, or a medic, they perform those functions in various organizations across the world. But the only place in all of DOD where all these men and women come together for this mission is at DPA. So we are we are honored to be the sole organization in all of Department of Defense that conducts this mission for the nation and families. Something that really struck me um, when I was doing a little bit of research into DPAA was just how much of a joint service this is. You've touched on it a little bit already of um, the personnel coming from different branches of the military, uh, but can you speak to it a little bit more of how you all work together? Sure. So, so we have four branches of the military that make up our military folks. Of course, civil service contractor, and I mentioned over 100 private partners. But also in that, we have strong support from the combatant commanders of the U.S., uh, which strongly support our efforts with augmenting men and women and helping us with our flights and global travel around the world. We're also recognized as a humanitarian effort, and we have strong partnerships with 46 countries around the globe. And to give you a data point, this year, we're, we're planning about 100 missions across 36 countries. As you and I speak today, we have teams in Korea, Laos, Palau, Italy, Great Britain, Denmark, and Germany, and several other teams are preparing to deploy to various countries in the coming weeks and months. Wow, to be a fly on the wall for some of these projects. I want to dive into those a little bit more in just a minute, but can you just give us a brief history of the DPAA? Like, when did it get started? Um, you mentioned that you kind of start with World War II as the earliest, but can you dive into the, the history of how you all um, came to be? Sure, I'll give you just a, just a brief history of that. So it, was, it wasn't until World War II that our country began a more systematic approach to search and recovery procedures. And our predecessor organizations started their efforts in 1947. And over the decades, there have been various organizations in our DOD that have conducted this mission. And as you roll the clock forward, in 2014, Congress directed the three DOD commands who performed this mission to be restructured and merged into one Department of Defense Agency, DPAA, and we were formed in 2015. All right, this is the part that I'm dying to know about. <laughs> I'm sure that there are no two projects that are exactly alike, and you've mentioned some of the places where your teams are at um, just today. Can you walk us through a typical project, if there even is such a thing? Um, where does the team get started when you're working on a new project and looking for either a new individual or a new group of um, personnel who are missing? Well, that's a great question and then probably a series of questions. So I'm going to uh, lay out some basic things about projects and I'll stop there for any more questions you have uh, because that, that's, as you know, the heart of what we do uh, in this effort at DPAA. So first, let me, let me allow, allow me to equate a project to a field mission. So whether it's an investigative mission to run down leads and correlate a site, or a recovery mission, which could be an underwater or terrestrial site, or finally a disinterment, which is really from one of our U.S. controlled cemeteries, all these make up what I'm calling a project or field missions with us today. Also, approximately 20% of our unrecovered Americans are at U.S. controlled cemeteries with a headstone that would state unknown Korean War, unknown World War II. And we have a successful program to disinter Americans from these U.S. controlled cemeteries for the purpose of identification. 
So back to your initial question of where does a project start, it all starts with the research and analysis that's done by our historians. And that can include eyewitness accounts from people that have firsthand knowledge of that loss incident, information from our national archives and the unit's account of that loss, along with, at times, information from families. So that, that's a start of what I want to share. I'll see if there's any other follow-on questions before I continue on this area. You mentioned that the historians are often some of the first who are working on one of these field missions. Uh, where, what sources might they be looking at in order to get you started? So you have the National Archives, which has a great deal of records from these units and actions. Uh, so we look at that and, and those, those logs will show what happened at that incident or that battle accounted by that unit. Uh, we have information from allied forces. Uh, we have, and then of course we interview uh, eyewitness accounts of that incident or that loss or that airplane crash from decades ago. So all those are put together by the historians, which really builds the foundation of our research and analysis to determine where to start looking for that unrecovered American. How do you prioritize which, um, where to focus? You know, could it be that a family member reaches out and that jumps? to the front of the line or is it just how do you prioritize all of these obviously there are so many people that you're still looking for so how do you figure out who um, to look for in any given year well that, that's a great question so going back you know we have roughly 81,000 Americans unaccounted for about 38,000 are believed to be recoverable so for those 38,000 it's a weighted criteria that we use on a variety of factors which includes the research that we have historical information uh, we have information from families. Uh, we've done a previous investigation to determine if that's the right location. And all those leads help us prioritize which ones to do every fiscal year. And the goal is, the goal is, how do I define success? And really success is, can I progress the case to correlate the site and have the likelihood of finding some kind of evidence which shows, like, say, a, a serial tag of an aircraft, maybe a dog tag of a service member, and then most importantly, can we find human remains? So that, knowing that that's our end state, we use all the data we have to determine how to use the scarce dollars from our taxpayers to be able to make the most, to be able to provide answers to families. So it's a very objective, subjective conversation because as you can imagine, every single American has the same priority to be found. It's just a matter of which one do we think we can uh, find soonest uh, with that mission in a given year. So it's a very, passionate uh, conversation that we have with our team. I'm sure. Okay, so going back to our um, walking us through this, um, let's say you've identified a location, there's enough evidence that you think this is a pretty good chance that you're going to be able to recover remains in this place. Let's assume that there were somewhere not on American soil. What do you do next? Who do you reach out to? What organization? What entities do you have to work with before you can begin a search for human remains? Sure. So we, we as we have got access with 46 countries across the globe, we in those in our detachments that are stationed overseas do a lot with us to work host nation relations, permitting, working with various ministries in those countries. So all that is laid out in the planning process. So when I know I'm going to do, let's say, 100 missions this year, that work was done a year ago to line up permitting, site access, coordination with local provinces, villages, et cetera, so our teams can come in and execute the work. 
feel free to tell me if this is um, a question that you're not allowed to answer, but are there locations around the world where you're unable to go and search for um, missing personnel? That's a great question. So I'll tell you the one location we used to uh, do missions in, and that's North Korea. Mm-hmm. We did missions in North Korea up to 2005, and uh, we would we would like the opportunity someday to go back to North Korea. Our teams are always poised and ready with the research and information, but it's just a matter of the North Korean government being willing to let us continue the humanitarian mission in the future. I'm sure that's a delicate balance because even though you're working so much in the past and, and what's happened in previous wars or conflicts, there's still... Um, trouble going on today. So I'm sure that's something that you continue to um, deal with and and set aside as you wait for some of those areas to open back up to you. You're exactly right on what your point was, because the leaders in our U.S. government believe that our mission is humanitarian in nature, and they see it being separate from denuclearization or other, other conversations. But that's only our view and vote when it comes to that access that you just talked about. Sure. Well, let's go back. Okay, we have identified a location. You're able to get there. You've been given the thumbs up from the local governments in that area, um, and you send a team out. Who is part of this team? What kind of equipment are they using, and how do they go about searching for those remains? Sure. So we have, based on the history we just talked about, and we forced every mission typically had an investigation mission ahead of time to basically lay out the site, make sure we're at the right location and correlate it. And so now we're on an actual recovery mission. Uh, those missions could be a small team of, of, let's say, six people, could be up to 60 people. And you're going to have an anthropologist or archaeologist on the team because they really are the ones that know how to dig the sites, how to correlate it, and how to prosecute the work. We have a medic on the site because we want to have be able to take care of our men and women. We have explosive ordnance disposal technicians because there always could be unexplored ordnance at these sites from the past wars. And we have uh, logistics personnel. We have linguists, of course, based on the foreign language and a host of other folks, along with guys and gals that are just doing the work of digging and screening soil. And we also, in many countries, will hire up to 100 local workers to help augment our field operations. And, and our tools are pretty simple. Uh, a lot of them you'll find in your garage. We have common hand tools and picks and shovels and axes and chainsaws. A lot of times we'll be using pumps to dewater an area or generators to power some of our equipment in the field. And when it comes to the disinterments we do across U.S. controlled cemeteries, we basically use smaller earth-moving equipment for those disinterment operations. It sounds like quite the operation. Um, And I I wouldn't have expected there to be so many local people to be hired on to assist with that. I think that's a really great um, way to work with the local governments and the local people in the areas that you happen to be in. Well, to your last point, I'll tell you that, that that's the beauty of this mission. It's really such a humanitarian mission in nature, and it really sets a foundation between two countries, us and others, on trust and goodwill, and allows us to do other things with that beyond our humanitarian mission. You know, I've been, I've been on missions to Laos and Cambodia, Vietnam, and what's great about it is you'll see our teams working side by side, let's say 100 men and women at the site, and about every hour you take a break because of the heat, and one hour you may have a the, the music box playing with a top 40s hit from the U.S. The next break is the Laos, you know, music they like. And so these guys and gals share music and things like that and really uh, bond and build a relationship over these, let's say, about an eight-week mission that we have 
to these various locations. Wow. That that made me come up with another question. Have there ever been instances where you're digging in some of these sites and you find remains, but they're not actually American? Um, maybe they were our enemies in, in whichever um, war you're working in. Has that ever happened? And if so, how do you work with the um, the other governments to um, bring that those remains to their to home in their country? Yeah, great point. And so when we do the research our historians, we have an idea of that battlefield area and who fought there based on the war records and the things in the archives. So we have a good idea where the battles were, where the enemies and the friendly forces were. So at times we will find remains that we believe are not American. So if that's the case, we do a scientific review called a joint forensics review with our scientists and the other countries equivalent scientists to determine whether we believe the country of origin is theirs or ours. And based on that level of science, we'll either return those, those remains will remain with them, or if they believe they're American remains, then we'll bring those remains back to our country. I can see how it's very much a joint humanitarian effort because you never really know what you're going to find. Um, and those remains are sacred to whoever um, they're coming from, whichever country they come from, whichever family they come from. Um, so I think that's really fantastic that you're able to work together so well, even if, you know, in the past we may have had, we may have been enemies. Now we're working together um, to bring those people home. Right. Let me share one example of that. I think that that really highlights what Please. you said. The, the Vietnamese government has been incredible uh, supporting our efforts to work with Southeast Asia Effort. So the Vietnamese have an organization called the Vietnamese Office for Seeking Missing Persons. We've trained three of those teams to do missions like we do. And while we couldn't travel due to COVID for almost 10 months in the height of COVID, those individuals did missions for us in the country of Vietnam, 13 of them to be exact in a year effort. And every one of those missions, Tricia, brought back something that, that forwarded a case. It could have been life support evidence or equipment, or in some cases, human remains. And we'll be able to make an ID from that. So that goes to show you where we've come from decades ago to now we're working beside each other. And we also train those folks, the Vietnamese, to look for their war dead as they're also on that effort, uh, along with us, what we're doing for American uh, service members. Wow, what a great secondary mission um, to, to be able to work together and to train others around the world. That's, that's amazing. Once we get into the lab, um, what is it that the scientists in the lab are doing um, with the remains that have been found? Is it primarily DNA research that they're doing? Uh, it's, a, it's a little bit of everything. Well, let me share what we do in the lab, and, and I'll kind of walk this through with you. So when we find those remains that we talked about at a site we believe to be American, we'll coordinate with the host nation, the U.S. Embassy, and any other organizations to bring those remains back to one of our two laboratories. We have one laboratory here in Hawaii where I'm stationed, and we have another laboratory in Offutt Air, Air Base, Nebraska. And then our scientists, once we've assessed those remains, start the analysis. The analysis starts off with a biological profile to determine ancestry, stature, sex, and approximate age of death. Our scientists also cut bone samples for DNA testing by our partner, the Armed Forces DNA Lab in Dover, Maryland, to see if there's a DNA match an existing family reference sample that might be on file that's been collected over the years from the families of those Americans that are unrecovered. And in the case, if we have any dental remains that, that are part of that, that site, we will use our odontologists, which are forensic dentists, 
to compare these dental remains to any records on file for a possible match. We also have a couple other uh, leading technologies. One is called chest radiograph x-ray, where we have discovered and been accredited as the first lab in the world to use your collarbones and the top vertebrae. And what we do is we found out that everybody's collarbones are unique, as unique as your fingerprint. And so that was discovered by our team of scientists here a few years ago, and it's been an authorized or accredited way to, to make an ID. And so if we have a, a X-ray of you when you're inducted in the military, like we did in the Korean War because of checking for tuberculosis, and if the remains happen to have collarbones, we can orient those collarbones in such a way when they were being taken for those radiograph uh, X-rays, and we will basically re-image it with dental clay and then compare the two uh, to, to see if we can make a match. So a variety of scientific efforts like that, but at the end, you'll find that it's a very thorough and methodical process from analysis to making an identification. Sometimes we can make an identification as little as a few months and sometimes several years, and it's really based on the condition of remains, the amount of remains we have, and the complexity of that loss incident. Hmm. So I that, that helps no you get an idea of what those amazing men and women do uh, that make up the team in our laboratories. That is amazing. I had no idea. Here I am touching my own collarbone going, oh, my gosh, I had no idea. There was so much information included in there. Well, that, that's incredible. I feel like TV's lied to me a little bit about um, exactly how this forensic uh, work is done. <laughs> but, but it's not like what you see on you know CSI shows on uh, TV where the DNA sample is done like in 30 seconds. All of a sudden they flip up a person on the on the uh, screen. It's a very long process. You can imagine these remains have been in the ground or in the water for decades. And that has an effect on, on the remains and DNA. So we have our folks at the Armed Forces DNA Lab have deterred, discovered new extraction methods. So now all you need is a bone sample the size of your fingernail. That's all you need uh, to be able to try to do that. And so we continue to, our scientists continue to advance science and push the envelope on solving things that maybe couldn't even solve five years ago. That's incredible. For those remains that are found underwater, um, I've spoken to NHHC's underwater archaeology branch several times about different projects that they've worked on. Um, but when the remains are found in the ocean or, or in some body of water, are there unique um, problems that are, the scientists have to work around um, as they work with these remains that have not been in the ground? The, the biggest one is the fact that you have you have the uh, salt water, and so we have to desalinize those remains in a very methodical, slow, deliberate process to basically rinse away the salt water and the salt and then, and then induce fresh water. So there's a process, as you can imagine, having those remains uh, not just come automatically up to the surface of the air, but to do that through exchanges of water to get the to reduce the salinity in those bones, but they will still yield DNA. Uh, mm -hmm. So they, they, they actually are preserved pretty well. The challenge you have is if you have, let's say, remains on the earth somewhere in a dirt where you have raining, freezing, thawing, raining, freezing, thawing, high temperature, where there's a cycling of environment, that has a lot of effect on the DNA in that bone uh, over the years. Over. Mm. Well, let's wrap up our pretend mission here. Um, so you've got some remains, they've gone through the lab, they've been identified. Who now is responsible for contacting family members of an identified individual and how does that process work? 
Great. So, so each branch of the military has a service casualty office. And those men and women notify the families after we apprise them of an identification. These notifications are typically made within 48 hours. And these are the same men and women in offices from each branch of the military who notify and provide support to families of current aid debts that we experience in our armed forces. So they're very well trained to be able to have these conversations and also let the family know of what benefits they have when we uh, identify their loved one in, in far as burial and things like that and those kind of graveside benefits that they'll be getting. Does DPAA ever participate in the memorial services for the identified personnel? We, we do. Um, we, we sure do. And so I'll share with you. Um, so real, a lot of memorial services typically happen in Arlington, in Virginia, or here in Hawaii at the Punchbowl Cemetery. And in many cases, maybe at somebody's hometown in Kansas City or Oklahoma, wherever it might be. And uh, when it comes to Arlington or here in Hawaii, there's always a, there's usually a DPA contingent that goes to represent our organization and really to pay respects uh, to the family and honor the service member uh, for their ultimate sacrifice to our nation. I imagine it's a nice way to wrap up a, a mission that could have been going on for years um, for your team. It, it is. I'll, I'll, if I can add a short story about that or a perspective Please. for me. Um, so here I'm a DPA as the operations officer, but I'm also a Navy flag officer. So with that opportunity of being a flag officer, I'm humbled and asked very often if I want to preside at a, at a internment or memorial service for a sailor that's going to get buried by his family uh, here in Hawaii at the Punchbowl Cemetery. And I'll tell you, unless I'm on travel and away, uh, I will always accept that honor to be able to do that. And, and the ones I've really been involved in are, are service members uh, from the USS Oklahoma and supporting those sailors' families when we inter those men for their final resting place. I'll tell you, each service has had an impact on me. It's been my high honor to attend as we pay respect to the families and honor each sailor for his bravery, his courage, and ultimate sacrifice. And lastly, I'll share with you is that as we look at these memorial services, uh, for me personally, for Darius Banaji, I'm at a loss to find the appropriate words that would describe the sense of feeling I have an honor and reverence when I kneel and present the nation's flag to the family. Uh, it, it is, uh, I'm, I'm humbled that I can do this for our country and honor those families and those service members. Mm -hmm. That is a nice segue into what I wanted to ask you about next was the USS Oklahoma. Um, I was deep diving into your website and looking into this project a bit more. Um, in 2003, uh, your organization began this project to disinter or mission uh, to disinter and identify all 394 unaccounted for personnel who perished aboard USS Oklahoma on the morning of December 7th, 1941. Um, tell us about this. How did it get started? Um, and what was it like working on this? Gladly. I, I tell you, this is uh, an honor for me to share uh, this perspective. So a little history first. The USS Oklahoma was the second largest loss on December 7th, totaling 429 sailors and Marines. These men were recovered during salvage operations a couple of years later between 1943 and 44, and then were interred into two Honolulu cemeteries here in Hawaii. A couple of years later, in 1947, all 429 were disinterred. Trisha, only 35 could be identified. The remaining 394 service members were buried as unknowns here in Hawaii at the National Memorial Cemetery of the Pacific, 
which is known as punch bowl. And then years later, uh, the Department of Defense and our Secretary of Navy approved a project which started in 2015 to disinter all 394 USS Oklahoma unknowns from the punch bowl. The, the key point I want to make about that, this approval was due to the resounding support by many, but most important, the support of the USS Oklahoma families, which resulted in us obtaining DNA samples for 95% of the service members that were lost that day. And that was huge when it came to the efforts by our scientists to be able to identify so many of those service members. So the six-year effort was led by our scientists at our lab at Offutt Air Force Base, Nebraska. And I'm humbled to share with you, the collective efforts accounted for over 90%, over 90% of those 394 unknown sailors and Marines from the USS Oklahoma who paid the ultimate sacrifice that day in December. But with that, there were still 33 USS Oklahoma service members who we could not identify individually. They were segregated into separate caskets and are part of a group identification and were all interred in Hawaii here at the Punch Bowl on December 7th last year on the 80th anniversary of the attack on Pearl Harbor. And our Secretary of Navy presided at that memorial service. So I hope that helps a little bit to explain what we did and what our team did. Uh, it's an incredible effort uh, by a lot of men and women to be able to provide those many answers to waiting families. Anything else I could answer on the Oklahoma project? It's honestly incredible that 90% were able to be identified, um, especially after such a long period of time. I think that's amazing. And it really speaks to um, what your team does and how, uh, what sort of professionals they are that they're able to do this work. Um, one question I did want to ask, I imagine with such a long project um, with so many people um, that you're you're trying to identify. Were there any surprises that the team found while they were working on this? I think that the biggest surprises we expected, but we didn't realize is how highly commingled the remains were. Like you may get a casket that we disinter, and there's definitely more than one person in there. And so the the sec to be able to disaggregate that, and then be able to put back together those service members. So we use the, the science we've talked about along with there's another scientific advancement called isotope signature. So I'll share with you that, that you and I are what we eat. We've also discovered another method called isotope analysis, which we're the only lab and the first lab to be accredited to do this too, is we can take a small bone sample, about a couple of grains the size of salt, and we can go through a, a, a chemical process with a mass spectrometer, and we can determine the signature in your bone based on where you grew up whether it was in the U.S., whether it was in Southeast Asia, or whether it was in a certain part of the country. And that signature, could now we could take commingled remains, and the ones have the same signature, we know they're from the same person. So a lot of methods like that, along with the basic biological profile and anthropology, we're able to take all those individuals from all those caskets and be able to basically disaggregate them and, and then from the commingled remains. That's really the hardest part, and then Getting DNA samples and having those over 95% DNA from families made it that much easier to be able to make uh, an identification for the Marines and sailors lost that day. Can you tell us more about the memorial services for the USS Oklahoma sailors that you were able to attend? You mentioned um, the 80th anniversary of Pearl Harbor last year. Can you tell us more about it? Sure. So for the for the ceremony we had last year for Pearl Harbor for the 8th anniversary, we of course we had our Secretary of Navy present. Uh, we had several other leaders uh, within the DoD, veterans. We had some surviving 
USS Oklahoma sailors that were present there that day when we basically interred those 33 that we couldn't identify individually as a group. Uh, and so we were able to pay homage and respect to those sailors and their families for that tremendous sacrifice. Uh, so that, that's one. And I, of course, have had the honor to be able to preside at several uh, memorial services in my time here. I'll share one with you that I that I had a chance to do last summer, and that was for the, the what we call the Trap Brothers. There were two brothers, uh, two petty officers, uh, Harold Trap and uh, William Trap. Both brothers were two years apart in age and hailed from Laporte, Indiana. And as told by the family to us, the Trap Brothers did everything together, including enlisting in the Navy together in 1939 in Chicago, Illinois. Uh, and then they, they both served together in the USS Oklahoma. And I had the honor to meet the family uh, that was the primary next to Ken here at Hawaii as we brought those caskets back from Nebraska to Hawaii to inter them and lay them to rest uh, here in, in Hawaii where they gave their, gave their lives. I'll share one interesting story with you. Uh, the Trap brothers had sent a note to their parents and it happened to be the day before the December, December 7th bombing. And they were having a poker game, hanging out with their friends the night before. And that, that letter got mailed uh, just by coincidence before the attack. And the family received that letter, you know, of course, weeks later. And what was amazing what the family mentioned to me is we were so happy that our two and now uncles, those two brothers, were able to enjoy their last day of laughing, joking, having fun with friends uh, before that, that, that her heroic day that happened on the, on the tragedy of December 7th. So what's amazing is how they saw the goodness that the fact that those two brothers, now uncles of theirs, were together laughing and joking uh, before that, that, that day that they gave their life for our country. Wow. Uh, I'm at a loss for words, honestly. Uh, that's, that's so moving. And I imagine that's probably representative of a lot of your days, uh, of the the powerfulness of, of the work that your team does, the moving experiences that you get to have with these families. Um, are there some other stories that you can tell us, things that have stuck with you, um, whether it's um, another Pearl Harbor um, sailor or, or someone from around the world, just some of your, your most moving um, experiences on the job? So I'll tell you, I think I think I shared some of the ones with you, but I'll tell you, every, every week is something like that. So mm -hmm. uh, I don't want to, there's so many I can mention to you that, that I may run out of time on your podcast. You'll say, Admiral Panaji, we're, you know, we're on a time limit. You know, when you give an Admiral a microphone, <laughs> we just keep talking. But let, let me share a, 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 that same, a, let me answer the question, if I can, a little different way for you. As you, as you, as you look at the men and women in our, our agency, what we think about with this noble mission, each loss is a, a former grandfather, a father, brother, son, uncle, best friend, or even a neighbor of somebody. Or they could have been a comrade in arms uh, where somebody came home and this hero gave his life uh, to protect our nation. And the detailed memories and stories like I just shared with you are passed down within the families and cherished by new generations. And we're just humble that we get to hear some of those from them. And it just reminds us of the value of what we get to do every single day regardless of who you are at the agency, every one of us have some important role when it comes to making identification. And I'll tell you, all of these have left a lasting impact on me as I get a chance to meet families. And it just brings it so real in front to me that, that it's just an amazing job. So on a personal level, I've been doing this, wearing our great, this uniform and wearing the nation's cloth for 35 years. And I've had eye-watering challenges and opportunities as a Naval officer, 
that, that I'm humbled that I've got to serve for so long and do so many great things with so many amazing teams. But I'll tell you, Trisha, with all that over 35 years, I can think of no more meaningful and profound way to serve and pay back and pay tribute to our nation, our veterans, and our families. I can, I can sincerely tell you I've not experienced anything more fulfilling in my entire life. I can only imagine. I think that's what has me so fascinated um, by by your agency. I, I I just I think it's incredible what all you do, and I don't think um, I don't think you get enough attention for the work that you do. I don't think um, that the public knows enough about um, how dedicated um, you all are to making sure that we find every single service member um, that. I think just underscores um, what it means to be part of the United States military and how no one is left behind, even if they, even if it's been decades, um, your agency is there to make sure that everyone gets home. Um, and I just, I find that so admirable. Well, you know, I'll share with you with that, you know, it, it's not a cliche and, it, and it's really sincere is that to our folks, every day is Memorial Day. Every day, if you think of what Memorial Day means to our country and, and, and all that we've lost, every day to us is Memorial Day as we do our best to provide answers to families and give them some feedback and answers and they can at some point lay their loved one to rest. Speaking of that, if there is a family who um, has their family member who is missing, how can they get in touch with you? How can they make sure that their family member is on the agency's radar? Ah, great question. So the first step is a family member to reach out to that specific service casualty office in our Navy's uh, service casualty office in Millington, Tennessee. But the easiest way is for, for anybody to visit our website, which is www dot dpa dot mil mil for military and you can learn more about our mission the contact information for every service casualty office how to donate a dna family reference sample uh, for a missing loved one or even how to assist our mission and you you know trisha you talked about how you like this mission well if you go to our website you go to the top of it and you can push a click that a button that says volunteers we have an amazing volunteer program too for men and women that want to provide uh, some time it could be historians it could be somebody joining us on the mission so uh I open that up to you and our audience, uh, and we welcome any and all uh, to to be able to join us in this profound mission. Uh-oh, now I'm in trouble. My free <laughs> right. time is about to get very taken up by volunteering for all of you. <laughs> uh, well, I could truly talk to you about this all day long, but your mission is far more important, uh, so I want to make sure that you have an opportunity to get back to work there. Um, but thank you so so, so much for joining me today. Is there anything that you want to close out with that we maybe haven't covered so far? Let me, let me highlight two points. One is um, we're funded by Congress to make, to have the capability and capacity to identify at least 200 Americans each year. And we've been able to achieve this prior to COVID because as you can imagine, all of us in the world after COVID have had reduced operations. But I can tell you last year, still in the height of COVID, we identified 142 Americans. And so far, this year, we've made 70 new identifications. And I can tell you, I'm so proud of our ability to provide answers to families despite COVID. The second one I want to share with you is you, you had talked about, you know, not as many people know about our mission. And that's why I really am so happy that you reached out to us so we could share. And really, my goal is to share some awareness of what we get to do for the nation, the families, and our veterans and comrades in arms with this uh, mission that goes on 365 days a year. 
as you drive around your city or your state or federal buildings, you'll find a iconic flag, a black and white flag that says POWMIA in the words you are not forgotten. And, and that reminds us all of the great mission that we do. I'll share just one story with you. Uh, this flag, this iconic flag, resulted from the efforts of family members to display a sustainable symbol that made the public aware of their loved ones who were being held prisoner or declared missing during the Vietnam War. And way back in January of 1972, the League of Families Board of Directors approved this design and ordered the flag for distribution. And as I mentioned, you know, you'll see this flag at every federal building, but it was also flown over the White House for the first time in September of 1982, and is the only flag other than U.S. flag to be displayed over the White House. So as I as I drive around now, I'm so much more sensitive than I was three years ago. When I drive around, I see that flag, and I was like, "That's what we get to do every single day is to is to give provide answers to our families." So thanks again. I really appreciate. It. I'm humbled that we could have a chance to share our story and what we get to do for this great country. Thanks again, Tricia. Oh, thank you, sir. Um, and listen. Um, like the Admiral said, you know, every day for them is Memorial Day. For us, we usually only um, think about it when it comes around each May. But please remember um, that for the Defense POW MIA Accounting Agency, every day is Memorial Day and every day of the year, um, this is what they're working on. So please check them out. Um, they are online on their website, on um, social media. If you want to check out what they're up to around the world.